Hello, my name is Megan Smith, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Today I'll be talking with you about the basics of neuropsychological testing and its role in the diagnosis and treatment of dementia. I have no disclosures to report. There are a couple of learning objectives that I'd like to achieve through my talk today. Number one, I'd like you to achieve a basic understanding of the process of neuropsychological evaluation. Two, I'd like to help you identify which patients might benefit from neuropsychological evaluations. Three, I'd like you to learn more about how neuropsychological evaluations can help patients, caregivers, and care providers. And four, I'd like you to gain an understanding of neuropsychological presentations of different causes of dementia. So to start off, let's talk a little bit about what neuropsychology is. Simply, it's the study of brain behavior relationships. It's a relatively young field that emerged after the end of the First World War. Neuropsychologists are engaged in identifying, quantifying, and describing changes in behavior that relate to the functional integrity of the brain. It represents a merging of clinical neuroscience and the educational psychometric tradition which emphasized reliable assessment techniques and statistical tools for test standardization. In 1997, the Houston Conference on the Specialty Education and Training in, Clin in Clinical Neuropsychology established a definition of a clinical neuropsychologist. And this was a meeting of several professional organizations involved in neuropsychology. What they established was that a professional a clinical neuropsychologist is a professional psychologist trained in the science of brain behavior relationships. They specialize in the application of assessment and intervention principles based on the scientific study of human behavior across the lifespan as it relates to normal and abnormal functioning of the central nervous system, so the brain and spinal cord. Neuropsychologists are trained as uh, clinical psychologists or counseling psychologists. So they have a doctoral degree, a PhD or PsyD in clinical or counseling psychology. And that includes a one-year American Psychological Association approved pre-doctoral clinical internship. As well, they complete a two-year postdoctoral fellowship, which is in specialty training in clinical neuropsychology. Now, we've talked a little bit about what neuropsychologists are. Let's talk a little bit about what it is that they do. So neuropsychological assessment has two key elements. One is that we use standardized test administration. The tests that we use are established with set rules for administration. They're administered the same way every time to every patient. We have set test materials that are used for each test. And perhaps most critically is we compare individual performance to appropriate normative data. On our tests, uh, 50 does not mean the same thing for every patient, and neuropsychologists must know how to apply the correct normative sample for a specific patient, and that can involve consulting the research literature as well as the test manual. To illustrate my point, I have a, a distribution of performances here. So for the majority of the tests that we use, uh, performance ends up in what we call a bell curve so a bell-shaped distribution, with the majority of people's performance here in the average range, so about the 25th to the 75th percentile. 
We also established the mean score for each population. So for normative data, this would be based typically on at least age and sex, if not also education. And then we established the standard deviations uh, for each test so that we can tell for each patient how many standard deviations they may be away from the population mean. We can represent scores in uh, z-scores, t-scores, or standard scores, all of which are standardized scores based on the population mean and standard deviation. So what's included in a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation for a patient referred for a question of dementia? We may start off with a cognitive screen, and these are measures that can be used in the office setting, such as the mini mental status exam or the MOCA. Uh, these are widely available instruments that don't require a great deal of training to administer, and they can give you a general sense of a patient's intellectual functioning. Patients could be selected through these screens to receive a more comprehensive evaluation that would include testing of the domains I have listed below. They're not to be relied on for diagnosis, since they're simply not detailed or comprehensive enough. So a more detailed evaluation may start with an estimate of someone's premorbid intellectual functioning, so achieving a premorbid IQ estimate. These measures are usually based on skills that tend to be resistant to change in a degenerative dementia or due to a traumatic injury, uh, like reading skill or vocabulary skill. They may also be based on demographic variables, such that you might expect somebody who uh, runs their own law firm to be at a higher intellectual level than someone who uh, is temporarily employed at a gas station. These tests allow you to estimate how a patient may have performed prior to any changes in their cognition, so that you can evaluate whether or not their current performance is discrepant with what we might expect for this particular person. Once that's obtained, you may move on to tests in different domains. Uh, domains are different ways to organize our conception of cognition. To some degree, they're a little bit artificially constructed, but they do ease in taking apart different aspects of cognition. So one of the first domains that I'll go over is attention and concentration. We look at this in a number of different ways in a neuropsychological evaluation. We may look at very basic attentional skills, such as auditory attentional capacity, or how much uh, information can a person hold on their mind for a short period of time. We may do this by asking them to remember longer and longer strings of numbers, and then perhaps manipulating the numbers by ordering them or saying them backward. We may also look at more complex attentional tasks that require what we call speeded information processing skills. So how can you manipulate information in your mind uh, we may ask a patient to do math problems in their head or to give us a, a running total of numbers that we read aloud to them. We may also look at a patient's sustained attention. So how are they able to maintain concentration on a task over a period of time? Executive functioning are the skills that you may think a CEO of a company might need. So things like planning, problem solving, organizing, initiating response, as well as inhibiting response, multitasking. Executive functioning tasks tend to rely on novelty. Uh, I've put an example of an executive functioning task up here on the screen uh, that's a Stroop task you may have encountered at a science museum or in an internet game. This is usually preceded by two previous tasks, but this 
task in particular looks at your ability to inhibit an overlearned response. So if we look across the first row here, the instructions would be to state the color of the ink that the word is printed in rather than simply reading the word, which is the overlearned response. So as we go across the top row here, the answers are green, purple, yellow, red. So it's a little bit difficult because as you can see, the word is often discrepant with the color of the ink. This would look at a patient's ability to inhibit a response. Other tasks of executive functioning include tasks where the patient is asked to tell the examiner how two words are like each other, or to reason through a visual pattern in a test booklet, to sequence tasks, that sort of thing. Motor functioning is a common element of a comprehensive uh, neuropsychological evaluation for dementia. We often look for uh, unilateral motor problems as an indicator of some vascular involvement. This is typically measured through manual motor functioning, though a gait assessment can also be performed. Common measures of motor functioning are things like a grooved pegboard task, where the patient is required to fit pegs into a board as quickly as possible in order to look at their fine motor functioning, or finger tapping to look at their gross motor speed. Learning and memory are essential for a dementia evaluation. We typically look at both verbal and visual memory, and we may look at this in a number of different ways. For verbal memory, often we'll read a list of words to the patient over a series of trials and look at their ability to learn the list over a period of time. We may then wait for a delay period and then ask the patient to repeat the list of words again. We can assess recognition memory by offering the patient cues, such as, was this word on the list, yes or no, and look at their ability to correctly recognize the words that were on the list. In this way, we can break out immediate learning, so immediate recall, as well as delayed recall or memory. We may also look at, at visual memory by having the patient reproduce a drawing that we present to them. Language skills are examined in a number of ways as well. So we may look at a patient's ability to name pictures of common objects. Uh, we may look at their ability to express themselves in written language by describing the events that they see depicted in a picture. We may evaluate their language skills during a clinical interview. So how are they able to express themselves when asked questions? We may also look at their auditory comprehension. Can they follow instructions? As well as their reading comprehension. Visual spatial functioning is another important area to assess. We look at patients' ability to understand where objects are in relation to each other in space by having them judge line angles and distances, using blocks to reproduce a visual pattern, or by having them uh, copy a complicated figure. Assessing their ability to complete their activities of daily living is also key for a dementia assessment. And this may be done through an interview with a caregiver in addition to an interview with a patient. And ideally, you would have a report from both. And this is a matter as simple as asking uh, the patient and their caregiver if they're able to do things that they always used to do. So if they're still working, are they able to uh, do well in their jobs? Are they able to drive safely? Are they able to do household chores? Are they able to still engage in the same hobbies that they used to? Lastly, mood functioning is essential to evaluate. Uh, many uh, types of dementia may present as a depressive illness initially, or patients may show increase in anxiety symptoms, 
or even apathy or disinhibition. So now that we've discussed what goes into a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation for dementia, let's talk about how neuropsychological assessment can be helpful in dementia care. One of the chief aims, usually for these types of referrals, is to establish or rule out diagnoses. So if your patient is presenting with an atypical presentation of dementia, or you're just not sure um, that's a correct diagnosis for this particular patient, neuropsychological assessment can help. So a common question that we get is whether or not a patient is presenting with a late-life depression or if they're starting to show the early signs of a degenerative dementia. So neuropsych testing can help in distinguishing between psychiatric and neurological symptoms. And I'll talk more later on about the types of cognitive symptoms that we see in late-life depression. We can distinguish between types of etiology. And I'll be going into a lot more detail about different presentations of dementia and how they look differently in cognitive testing. We can also establish behavioral correlates to neuroimaging findings. So if a patient has had significant neuroimaging findings to establish some behavioral changes to go along with that. This is important because we know that not all uh, neuroimaging findings are going to result in changes in behavior. So for example, we can turn to the Nunn study, a very well-known study uh, completed by David Snowden that examined hundreds of Roman Catholic nuns over several years. And one of the more famous participants is Sister Mary, uh, who died at 101 years of age, still performing well within the attack range and all cognitive measures administered to her as a part of her participation in the study. Now, on autopsy, after her death, her neuropathological findings were very significant um, in terms of uh, indicators of Alzheimer's disease. She had a very high count of neurofibrillary tangles and plaques that are consistent with Alzheimer's. However, in her day-to-day -day life, she was functioning just as well as she ever had. This just highlights that we can't rely on neuroimaging for diagnosis, that there needs to be a behavioral correlate. So other ways in which neuropsychological assessment can be helpful in dementia care are monitoring disease progression and response to treatment. So we are able to do serial assessment over time to see how a patient is progressing, uh, whether or not a treatment has helped in slowing the progression of an illness. We may be helpful in supporting disability applications. If patients are uh, before retirement age and are unable to work due to their cognitive changes, having objective test evidence can be very helpful in order to support their disability application. Identifying safety concerns is a very frequent referral question, um, particularly driving. And there are definitely sensitive tests to look at when a patient's driving safety is a question. These are things like speed of attention, executive functioning, and visual spatial functioning can all be predictive of, of driving safety. And then lastly, assessing and making recommendations for increasing care needs. Family members often find it helpful to have an outside provider make recommendations on when a patient may need to have additional assistance during the day, either through placement um, or through home health aid or other types of assistance services. So we've talked a little bit about what neuropsychologists are, what they do, how neuropsychological assessment can be helpful and for which patients. So let's talk a little bit more about dementia and how different forms of dementia 
present from a neuropsychological perspective. And just to ensure that we're all on the same page, the way I'm defining dementia for this particular talk is a, a significant change in cognition that's resulted in a change in the patient's abilities to complete their activities of daily living. Dementia typically has a chronic progressive course. It may be a gradual decline, stepwise, or both. Uh, stepwise uh, decline with progressive uh, changes in between. Generally speaking, patients with dementia have a stable level of consciousness, though I will talk about some exceptions to this. Another important thing to remember is that patient insight is frequently impaired in degenerative dementias, and it's critical to involve caregivers in your assessment. Patients and caregivers are often very confused about terminology used in dementia, what the term actually means, and the long-term prognosis. So this is definitely an area in which spending some additional time in patient education can be very helpful. Some of the common differential diagnoses in a dementia assessment are, as I've mentioned before, depression, particularly late life depression, delirium, normal aging, and then so-called reversible causes of dementia, like thyroid dysfunction, B12 and folate deficiencies, and liver or kidney dysfunction. So it can be important to rule these out through laboratory testing. Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, representing the cause of about 50 to 70 percent of all dementias. So we have our horses here to remind us that when you hear hoofbeats, don't look for zebras. So Alzheimer's disease is going to represent our horses here. The course of Alzheimer's disease is gradually progressive. It's an insidious onset and progression. Generally speaking, patients can expect to lose about three mini mental status exam points per year, though there's variability within the sample. 90% of Alzheimer's disease cases are sporadic, and about 7 to 10% are familial, so they're a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. The hallmark symptom of Alzheimer's disease from a cognitive perspective is memory loss. So this is represented as enterograde amnesia, so difficulty in forming new memories. This tends to be the earliest and most prominent symptom. On testing, you'll see this as a patient who has difficulty learning word lists or short story tasks, and then also has an immense amount of difficulty remembering that information after a delay. Um, typically what you'll see is what we call an amnestic pattern of rapid forgetting, where patients are often unable to even recall that they've been presented with a list or a short story uh, prior to the administration of the delayed trial. This is also seen for visual memory as well. Patients with Alzheimer's disease often have executive dysfunction, so they may have difficulty with inhibition, planning, multitasking. They often have problems with visual spatial skills, and this may result in them um, having car accidents. They may have difficulties with language. This is typically characterized by anomia, so difficulty with word finding. You may find patients that talk around the words that they can't think of. Alzheimer's disease also frequently presents with uh, impaired awareness of deficits and apathy in terms of behavior changes. So I'll be presenting a number of cases today to illustrate my points. I should have a little caveat that uh, all of the patient details have been slightly changed in order to preserve these patients' confidentiality. So for this first case, I'll be talking about an 88-year-old widowed Caucasian woman that I evaluated. She lived alone. 
She had 12 years of education, and her medical history included hypertension, hyperlipidemia, atherosclerosis, and COPD. So she had a number of other contributing factors. This patient came in uh, by herself, though she was cared for in the home by a 76-year-old niece who did the cooking and cleaning for her. The niece had informed us that the patient hadn't used her stove for about three years, though she did still do all of her grocery shopping for herself. She tended to buy only sweets. She smoked a carton of cigarettes a week and would make a pot of coffee at the beginning of the week that she would then reheat and drink throughout the week. The patient was very pleasant, uh, nice to talk with. She was very carefully made up, but her eye makeup was only on one side of her face. She reported when asked that her uh, physician had told her at her last evaluation that she was perfect, that she had no problems. She reported no mood symptoms. Her daughter had been managing her bills for the past several years because the patient had had several late payments and was receiving notices from utility companies. On cognitive testing, the patient uh, performed well on measures of attention. Uh, she did fine on visual spatial skills, motor skills, as I mentioned before, she reported no mood symptoms. However, she had a striking memory impairment, and when asked to repeat a list of words, asserted that I had never read her a list of words. She also had some difficulty with a naming task. I'm going to show, her, show you one of her tests. Um, this is a clock drawing test. Many of you are likely familiar with this. It's a great measure to use in the office, just as a very, very rough screen of somebody's intellectual functioning. You don't need any particular materials to do it. This patient was instructed to draw me the face of a clock, to put all the numbers in, and to set the hands for 10 after 11. I deliberately use the more idiomatic expression of putting the face of the clock and putting all the hands in, because that can elicit uh, disinhibited behavior from some patients. So you can see that for this patient, she's not really even retaining what the shape of a clock should look like, and has instead presented the numbers in a square. This is her drawing to command. Uh, when I had her copy a printed drawing of a clock, she was able to do a much better job um, demonstrating her intact visual spatial skills. So this could be interpreted as impaired executive functioning. I'll very briefly mention mild cognitive impairment, as I know there is another lecture in this series dealing with this topic uh, in greater detail. Mild cognitive impairment is thought to be the sort of inter intervening period between normal aging and dementia. The criteria for diagnosis are a memory complaint, either from the patient, loved one, or physician, impaired cognition on testing, with minimal or no functional decline, so intact activities of daily living. There are three subtypes, so amnestic, so memory problems only, single domain, impairment in another cognitive domain like executive functioning or attention, or multi-domain, when more than one cognitive domain is affected. Patients diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment in research studies convert to dementia at a much higher rate than typical healthy elderly do. So for one study, it was about 12 to 15% per year uh, versus 1 to 2% in a normal elderly population. So they're at 5 to 10 times the normal risk. Vascular dementia is another common etiology of dementia. This is what used to be called multi-infarct dementia. It encompasses a lot of forms of vascular etiology, including cerebral vascular disease, multi-infarct dementia, and mixed dementias. 
so both Alzheimer's disease and vascular presentations, and likely represents about 12 to 20 percent of all dementias. You'll note that throughout my talk today, the percentages are not going to add up to 100 uh, percent. That's because they're based on a variety of different research articles. In vascular dementia, you can expect to see a stepwise pattern of decline rather than the slowly progressive changes that you see in Alzheimer's disease. The differentiation of vascular disease from Alzheimer's disease is typically based on the course or onset. So again, looking for that stepwise pattern, a sudden change rather than a gradual one. People with vascular dementia tend to have more focal or patchy deficits depending on the areas of stroke or vascular change. Comorbidity with Alzheimer's disease pathology is very common. Generally speaking, people with vascular dementia may have more pronounced attentional impairments than individuals with Alzheimer's disease. They may have better memory functioning. Um, they may tend to have worse executive functioning and they may present with more depressive symptoms than individuals with Alzheimer's disease do. Frontotemporal dementias, or you'll sometimes see frontotemporal lobar degeneration, represent about 3 to 20 percent of all dementias. They're characterized by changes in language and personality and behavior, sometimes referred to as comportment. The age of onset is typically younger in this type of dementia, usually less than 65 years of age. The average disease duration is between 8 to 11 years, and males and females tend to be equally affected by this type of dementia. There's often a family history of similar disorders, but that's not necessary. This includes uh, the dementia that used to be referred to as Pick's disease. There are three types of frontotemporal dementia that I'll be reviewing with you today. The first is the behavioral variant. Now, in the behavioral variant of this illness, you can expect to see pronounced changes in personality and executive dysfunction. Patients may initially present as psychiatric. Um, sometimes they're initially misdiagnosed as having a late-life onset bipolar disorder. Uh, patients may exercise poor judgment. They may be uh, accidentally insulting people or, or getting themselves involved in risky situations that they typically wouldn't. They may demonstrate a language impairment. Memory impairment tends to emerge later on in the course of illness. It doesn't usually uh, present as an initial symptom. And recognition memory tends to remain intact, unlike Alzheimer's disease, where cues and reminders don't tend to help. Visual functioning tends to be intact initially in the early stages of the illness. There are also two forms of frontotemporal dementia that demonstrate a very distinct language deficit. The first is primary progressive aphasia. Patients with this type of dementia um, can demonstrate telegraphic or halting speech. They have word-finding difficulties with the progressive loss of fluency, with relatively preserved comprehension of language. They may demonstrate the same types of behavioral symptoms as the behavioral variant of FTD. They tend to develop later on in the course of the illness. Generally speaking, these patients have preserved working memory skills, visual spatial skills, visual memory skills, and executive functioning. It's difficult to assess their verbal memory due to their aphasia. The third type of frontotemporal dementia that I'll be going through today is semantic dementia, which is also sometimes known as primary progressive fluent aphasia. 
These patients demonstrate a specific impairment in semantic knowledge, but preserved syntax. And I'm using an example from a patient that I've seen here to illustrate the different presentation that you see here in semantic dementia versus primary progressive aphasia, or PPA. So when asked to write me a sentence, any kind of sentence, the patient wrote, Lefty's facial composition is aware of his life in the day of light and human exposition. It's a beautiful sentence. Uh, it reads somewhat poetically, uh, but it's pretty devoid of meaning. So you can see that the patient's still retaining their understanding of syntax and sentence construction, but the meaning is gone. When asked to define uh, or to give me the word for line drawing of a whistle, the patient answered, it's an athletic official ready to pacify all the athletes on the gridiron. So you can see that he retained some degree of understanding of what a whistle is and was able to describe it, not in the, the most accurate way, but, but get at it, a little bit of the meaning. But he wasn't able to come up with the word whistle. So he's demonstrating that anomia. As I have noted for primary progressive aphasia, patients with semantic dementia usually have preserved working memory skills their visual spatial skills and visual memory and executive functioning are typically in intact early on in the illness. It, again, is difficult to assess their verbal memory skills. It can be very difficult to test these patients once their dementia is more advanced due to their difficulties with communicating, though it can still be done. So to go over a case presenting with a type of frontotemporal dementia, I'll talk with you about a patient that I saw that was a 66-year-old married Caucasian woman. She was retired from her job as a department store manager. She had 18 years of education, and her medical history included obstructive sleep apnea, diabetes, arthritis, and hypothyroidism. She came to the attention of her primary care provider because she had been falling asleep while driving and doing some risky driving as well. While she was there, her family uh, relayed to her physician that she had been exercising poor judgment recently um, and had been embarrassing her family by loudly talking about others at family events or in public, insulting people. She had called her, her daughter-in-law fat at one point. Um, this was all a profound change from her previous uh, personality. The patient had no concerns of this, of this type. Um, and expressed that she felt that she was doing just as well as she ever had. Now on testing, uh, she really struggled with executive measures, as you might expect. Um, she could not complete a task that required her to alternate between connecting numbers and letters in order as quickly as she could. She struggled with a task requiring her to use her judgment to reason through some health and safety scenarios. Her memory looked uh, fairly intact. She had a mild impairment in initial verbal learning. Um, she had a little bit of difficulty in visual spatial skills. But within all this, her activities of daily living were largely intact. Um, so we ended up diagnosing her with mild cognitive impairment, but suspected strongly that this would evolve into a behavioral variant of FTD. I'll also be talking about dementia with Lewy bodies. Now with dementia due to Parkinson's disease, this may account for about 15 to 22% of all dementias. Patients with DLB often present with fluctuations in alertness and arousal. So this is an exception to uh, the general rule that patients with dementia tend to have fairly consistent levels of consciousness. They may have times where they're suddenly very confused or don't know where they are. They may present with symptoms of uh, REM sleep behavior disorder. 
So acting out their dreams during their sleep, kicking or punching, getting up out of bed. Um, it's often useful to ask a spouse or partner about these symptoms because patients may not remember them. They may present with visual hallucinations, which are usually mood congruent and tend to be benign. Uh, patients tend to report seeing things like small animals or children. They tend to be relatively unconcerned about these hallucinations. They may present with Parkinsonian motor symptoms on neurological exam, so things like rigidity or cogwheeling. They may also present with neuroleptic sensitivity, so it can be very important to accurately assess for this diagnosis prior to prescribing medication. From a neuropsychological perspective, what we anticipate seeing in these types of patients are prominent attentional, executive, and visual spatial impairment with relative sparing of memory functioning and naming skills, at least in early disease. As the disease progresses, it becomes more difficult to differentiate this presentation from that of Alzheimer's disease. But early on, there's a distinct cognitive profile that may emerge. So to give you a case illustration of this type of presentation, I once evaluated a 74-year-old married Caucasian man with 16 years of education. His medical history was significant for some vascular changes, uh, requiring two cardiac stents. He also had glaucoma, and he had symptoms of REM sleep behavior disorder. He also had occasions of reduplicative paramnesia for his wife. Uh, he was under the impression that there were multiple women that were representing his wife that lived in his house. Uh, he was unconcerned by this. It wasn't something that upset him. He would occasionally uh, be disoriented as to where he was. He would ask his wife if they could go home while they were sitting at home. He had uh, been brought to see a neurologist due to some changes in memory, though, um, and that was one of the initial symptoms that people in his family noticed. Though on testing, his executive functioning, visual spatial functioning, and attentional deficits were far more prominent. And if we look at his performance in the clock drawing task, you can see a nice uh, dissociation here. So what we're first looking at is his performance on drawing the clock to command. So again, he's told to draw a face of a clock, put all the numbers in, and set the hands for 10 after 11. So you can see, while well, this is far from a perfect representation of a clock, it's not too bad. He's got the, all the numbers are there, um, the 1 is a little bit above the 12, but um, it's in roughly a circular uh, orientation. His hands aren't, his hand placement isn't so great though. But then when we look at his ability to draw the clock to um, copy, things actually fall apart. And he actually does a worse job at copying the clock than he does at drawing it to command. And you can see here that he's affected by his visual spatial impairment, that it was much more difficult for him to copy something uh, than it was for him just to draw it on his own. So now we have our zebras, right? You recall that we mentioned before that Alzheimer's disease is going to be when we hear hoofbeats. There are also a number of zebras or less common causes of dementia. I mentioned Parkinson's disease earlier when talking about dementia with Lewy body. And the differentiation between dementia due to Parkinson's disease and DLB can be complicated. Generally speaking, if cognitive complaints precede Parkinsonian symptoms by 12 months, then it's dementia with Lewy's body, whereas if the motor symptoms precede the cognitive impairment, it's dementia due to Parkinson's disease. There's some debate over this. Huntington's disease, so a genetic uh, neurodegenerative disorder, is also 
can be a cause of dementia, though less common. The Parkinsonian syndromes, like progressive supranuclear palsy or corticobasal degeneration, also can cause dementia. Normal pressure hydrocephalus, chronic alcohol use, traumatic brain injury, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or HIV and AIDS can also cause dementia. Lastly, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about cognitive impairment due to depression. This is a very frequent referral question to our clinic. Uh, one thing that I'd like to suggest is that we avoid using the term pseudodementia. It tends to be fairly outdated and somewhat misleading, as these deficits, uh, there's nothing uh, fake about them, which the term pseudo sometimes can imply. Typically, the deficits associated with late-life depression persist following the successful treatment of depression, leading some to debate whether or not this represents a prodrome of degenerative dementia, or if it's an independent risk factor for the development of dementia. We do know that individuals with lifelong histories of depression are at higher risk for the development of a degenerative dementia in later life. Individuals with cognitive impairment and depression tend to be more resistant to treatment, particularly individuals with pronounced executive functioning impairments. They may have more difficulty responding to medication. Now, how do we see this neuropsychologically? Well, typically, this can be teased out from other forms of dementia um, by looking at the pattern of performance. So deficits that we see due to depression typically include impairment of executive functioning, attention, learning and memory, and occasionally visual-spatial skills. In examining their memory performance, individuals with depression and cognitive impairment due to depression tend to benefit from recognition cues and recall tasks. So when asked, was this word on the list, yes or no, or tell me how many words in the list were uh, pieces of fruit, they can benefit from those cues, unlike individuals with Alzheimer's disease. Relative to individuals with Alzheimer's disease, they make fewer intrusions and fewer false positive errors. People with Alzheimer's disease tend to guess and may uh, confabulate or give answers that, that were unrelated to the task whereas individuals with cognitive impairment due to depression are more likely to give I don't know responses. So to sum up, what I hope to do today was to enable you to achieve a basic understanding of the process of neuropsychological evaluation, to help you with some tips to identify which patients might benefit from neuropsychological evaluation, to teach you about how neuropsychological evaluations can help patients, caregivers, and care providers, and to understand the neuropsychological presentations of different causes of dementia. Thank you very much for your attention.